It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I'm Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams who does the column in the New York Post. I do this broadcast every Sunday on WABC from 1 to 2 with my usual scintillating, semi-brilliant interviews or talks or bits of information. Like, people ask me what life is like doing a column. Let me tell you about my about my high life. A neighbor the other day invited his friend, the Prince of Denmark, with this prince's wife, the princess, to sponge in his apartment for a few days while this neighbor had to go away and Europe's high-class, high-born royal highness, the prince, was then visiting New York. What did I know? Nobody told me this was happening, so what did I know? It's Sunday. I'm alone with my dog. I'm in pajamas, no makeup, no hair combed, cream on my face, holding my cranky Yorkie, whose only interest at that moment is peeing. But who knew? And I innocently open the door to walk out and shove my trash out in our incinerator room. How do I know a high-class, high-born, royal prince is standing there, standing stiff, starched, erect, like Denmark is at war and he's leading the troops. And we've got a small little vestibule. There's not a lot of space. This royal guy is standing in my hallway in full dress uniform with boots, braid, gold buttons, chest medals, a saber, hanging down the side, a visor and a bemetalled cap. He is starched. He is perfect. He is erect. He is waiting for the elevator. How do I know a prince is there? I'm into garbage, dressed like a homeless old crone. And alongside him, oy, this princess with him, in floor length, off the shoulder, poofy, bedecked with sequins, gown, jewels, low-cut décolleté, hair done up like she's Marie Antoinette. Even her nose hairs had to be tinted. And me? I am holding a squirmy animal, plus a crumpled, rumpled, plastic-stuffed bag of leftover bones to be thrown out, plus pajamas which could have been washed but weren't. She stares at me in horror at this apparition, me, me, in shock, like who the hell knew a prince and princess were going to be in my hallway, right outside my door. I stare back at them. There was no place for me to hide, and certainly no way to say, hi, welcome to New York. We each stared in stunned silence at the other, plus with them, accompanying these royal highnesses, obviously to protect them from some flotsam and jetsam such as myself, there was standing a uniformed, bemedaled, bebooted equerry with sword down his side and medals all over him, also staring at me. They did not find this amusing. How do I know? In shame, I'll tell you. 
Why? Because a few months later, I was in Europe, and I was in their country. Our ambassador, proud at my presence, informed them I was there. They were giving, while I was visiting their city, a glorious, gorgeous, glamorous, big black tie gala. Invitation only. I was not invited. Okay, wait. One more great moment for me. There was a highly pressured day just last week. Somehow, most days are. I didn't know what to do first. Phones ringing, dog barking, my assistant sulking, my housekeeper arguing, the elevator man ringing, my editor complaining, my computer is sticking, and I'm running around. I have a small, tight roll of cash in one hand and a safety box key in the other. I, therefore, did the only intelligent thing. I flushed all the cash down the john, and I mailed the key in a letterbox. Listen, now that I'm sort of sane again, I now want to talk baseball. Not about my beloved Yankees. I still wear their year 2000 championship ring. This is not even about the lousy Red Sox, because I have a story to tell you about them. I was... I was told by the Boston Globe newspaper that they did not want me in their city anymore. They actually wrote an editorial about me to keep me out of Boston. They said, in print, we must keep Cindy Adams out of Boston. They actually wrote, ban her, forbid her. Why? Because, speaking of baseball... I had written about their lousy Fenway Station. When I was there, their Fenway Stadium. When I was there, I went for a Frank. Everyone eats hot dogs at a ball game. I mean, you won't believe this. It's so upsetting that it's enough to change your religion, this story. The hot dog they gave me at Fenway in Boston. You ready? It was beige. Tan, beige, whoever eats a beige hot dog. So I did the only intelligent thing. I wrote about that, and I told them they can shove their city and their stadium and their hot dog. And the Boston Globe said I should be banned from Boston. So now... Now we're going to go to the Mets. There is now a four-part documentary on ESPN. It's titled Once Upon a Time in Queens, and it's about their Once Upon an Era, 1986. The Mets were kings then. Its producer is Jimmy Kimmel. Its director, who is with me now, is Nick Davis. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, Nick, I've given you a high-class introduction. Now, you come from an illustrious show business family. Tell us about it. Who, what? My grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, and his 
brother was my great uncle, Joe Mankiewicz. Herman wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles' participation on some level. And uh, Joe did All About Eve, among many other films he wrote and directed. Cleopatra, Sleuth. That's a high-class family. Before we get to baseball, what's your background in show business? I mean, what have you done? Who are you? Well, yeah, who am I? Well, I did just write this book about the two of them, Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mako. It's a dual portrait, but uh, I've been working in film since about 1990. My first job was with Ken Burns on the baseball documentary series, and then I didn't work on any baseball films for 25 years. Um, I've done many documentaries. Uh, I did a feature in the 90s. Uh, I've uh, managed to stay off the streets. <laughs> you uh, are you some kind of athletic freak? I, mean, I know you also did something about a cycling team. Am I right? Yes, I didn't know anything about cycling before I was asked to do that film. It was about a film, a, a cycling team that was trying to prove that you could ride clean and still succeed at the highest levels of the sport. This was in two thousand and eight, um, and it's fun to do a film about something you know nothing about. It's also really fun to do a film. Uh, about something you are passionate about. Before we get to the film about which you are passionate, what does it mean to ride clean? It means you're testing uh, yourself every day at random times and making sure that everybody knows you guys are not cheating. And they had a remarkable run, that team, in 2008. And it was right in between Lance Armstrong's first retirement and then when he came back. And the sport was really riddled with drugs. And they wanted to prove that you didn't need drugs to succeed. And, and they did. Well, we'll get into drugs when we get into your... Are we getting into drugs, Cindy? Well, I'm not getting into them, but uh, but your, your documentary and stuff. Okay. Uh, are you, you... First of all, are you a New Yorker? Yes. I'm a New Yorker, lifelong, born and bred. Did you ever actually play baseball? I did. It's so nice of you to ask. I <laughs> I would get. I was not very good, except for brief moments when I was maybe sort of too old for the group I was with. Like in tenth grade, the good players were on the varsity, <laughs> but I was the captain of the JV because all the good tenth graders were in the varsity. Um, so I had a really good tenth grade year, and then that was it. Well, what the hell are you doing about baseball? I mean, I love baseball. It's a fantastic sport, and it's full of great stories and um it's just been a passion of mine since i was a child well we're here now because you have a documentary that's been on and is now i think streaming or whatever it is tell us about it it's about the mets now i am a born again yankee fan i have good Yankee championship ring. Good. Always. Good. What is your thing about the Mets? Well, I am a lifelong Mets fan. And so I never knew that uh, a time when they were good. I My first memory was, oh, the Mets are not as good as they were last year when they won the World Series. So in 1969, they won the World Series. And then I came of age and they weren't good anymore. And then in 1977, the great tragedy, as many Mets fans know, they traded Tom Seaver, who was their great player. Yeah. And then they fell into the absolute toilet. And what's interesting is that the city was itself in the toilet in the late 70s, and that as the Mets were sold and then got better in the 80s, the city was doing better, too. And it felt like, to Met fans anyway, hey, the Mets are doing better, the, the city's getting better, this is actually starting to happen. And as the Met team of the 80s came together, as a fan, it was so exciting, you felt like, hey, I'm actually in the presence of something historic happening. Like, I'd heard about the 
great Yankee teams, the 61 Yankees, the 27 Yankees. What must it have been like f- to root on those legendary teams, the 55 Dodgers? And as the, that Met team came together, we all felt like, hey, this is really dynamic and exciting. They're not just great ballplayers. They're entertaining, interesting personalities, one after the other. Gooden, Strawberry, Hernandez, Carter. These are fascinating, twisted individuals. Dykstra. When I say the word twisted, I have to include Lenny Dykstra. But then <laughs> it's the, Mookie Wilson, the sunniest man alive. Like, they were all so interesting and had so much personality that to watch that team come together in the 80s was just tremendously exciting. And that's what I wanted this film, Once Upon a Time in Queens, now streaming on ESPN Plus and also available on, you know, Amazon Prime, I think, and, and iTunes. That's what I wanted this film to do is capture that excitement. Did the Mets guys see it? They did. They did. The response from the players has been really uh, heartwarming. I mean, I, I, they didn't. What does heartwarming mean? That's a dumb thing. Uh, well, What's so great? What does it mean? When, you know, when you idolize these guys and then all of a sudden you're getting a phone call from Daryl Strawberry and he's telling you that he was moved by the film, uh, you just feel like, wow, what, what kind of life is this? How did this happen? Uh, and, and, you know, Keith Hernandez sent me a nice email and, and I know that Dwight and, and Mookie Wilson, like they, they've all been very positive about it because it, obviously we all know, let's get back to the drugs. They, they did a lot of bad things, that team. They, uh, did not treat people particularly well. A lot of them had drug and alcohol problems that came to light later, but enough time has gone by. I think that they all felt to a man like, Let's tell the full story. We're not hiding. We're not trying to whitewash. Um, but we're also not trying to expose in some sort of Mike Wallacey way. No disrespect to the late Mr. Wallace. But like we're not getting them. We're telling their full story with their, their human beings with a lot of flaws and a lot of interesting personality. And so I think they all felt like we did it justice. We did their story justice. Also, before we get back to them, the justice is also because they're aged. That's a part yes. of this justice, sweetheart. Oh, tell us the <laughs> name. Tell us about 1986. Describe it for some people who don't remember. Well, it was a tremendously exciting time in the city because there was still a lot of grit and dirt and crime, but there was also a sheen of glamour and sexiness and nightclubs and cocaine was part of that. And so the city was like throbbing with this electric energy. And by the way, I would never, I'm saying this just as a guy, like that was my experience. But as the players described their experience and the other people we talked to for this film, they all described the same city, that it was it was exciting, it was electric, wild, unruly. There weren't a lot of regulations and there was something a little bit dangerous was about it, it. Was it like we're living through now? <sighs> yes, I think that now is a different sort of excitement and I'm not equipped to talk about. I feel like now is it feels like the center is not going to hold and the bottom could fall out. I, I feel like now is a more dangerous time than it was then. Then it was dangerous, but sort of exciting and it feels like everything is going up and then it'll explode and collapse and we'll have to rebuild. 
uh, I don't know where we are right now. I hope I hope that you're right. I hope that it's exciting and dangerous, but we're going to rebound and the city is going to come back with flying colors. I'd like to believe that. Okay, before I go into, I have eight million questions I want to ask you about everybody, but tell us, tell us the names of the guys on the team in those days to bring it back to those of us who don't know. Well, Keith Hernandez was sort of the de facto leader of the team. He came to the Mets in 1983. He was a swashbuckling sort of raffish guy from the Cardinals. He'd won an MVP. He has a historically beautiful mustache. He's a very good-looking man. He went on to be the you know guest star on Seinfeld episodes. And tremendous ego and healthy uh, you know sense of himself. But he also had a crazy relationship with his father who was very domineering it turned out and he told us all about it and uh, he said that the the film that really sort of exemplified his childhood was Fear Strikes Out which is the Jimmy Pearsall story where Jimmy Pearsall played by Anthony Perkins of Psycho fame is driven slowly crazy by his father the domineering Carl Malden and so you think like wait that's Keith Hernandez it's a very weird self-conception so anyway he was great uh, very open with us, came to the Mets in 83 and almost instantly gave them a credibility like, oh, they have a great player. He was MVP a few years ago with the Cardinals. Turns out he was probably only traded from the Cardinals because they knew he had been a drug addict in St. Louis and they wanted him off the team. But the Mets were happy to get him. And after that came to light and there was a drug trial in uh, Pittsburgh in September of 85, the Mets were in the heat of a pennant race. Hernandez comes back to Shea Stadium. He's not sure how the fans are going to react. And of course, they give him a rousing standing ovation and all the pressure goes away and he immediately lines a base hit and and drives in a run. Um, So he was sort of the first of of the great players to get there. But there's also Daryl Strawberry, who I mentioned before, uh, Dwight Gooden, who was just a phenomenal pitching phenom, uh, and Gary Carter, the fourth of the sort of tentpole players, who was the greatest catcher in baseball at the time, and also a born-again Christian who had no business being in that locker room with those other guys. Um, but he Mookie, Mookie. And Mookie, Mookie Wilson, of course, there's Mookie Wilson, also uh, a, a, a decent man who did not. It, it, they, Mookie said, like, 23 of the guys would go out at night, and Gary Carter and I would go back to the hotel. And, and the re- you know, they were the milk drinkers and everybody else was out partying and drinking and doing whatever. Um, Lenny Dykstra, the fabulously profane and hilarious and heartbreaking, uh, you know, outfielder uh, was on the team. Bobby Ojeda, truly smart pitcher. Ron Darling. I mean, Ray Knight, the sort of soul of the team that the franchise did not understand. The management did not understand how important Ray Knight was to the team. Ray Knight was married to the greatest female golfer of the time, Nancy Lopez. I mean, they all had such interesting stories, Cindy. Okay, what was their lifestyle. That's the story. That's basically the story of why they went down into the toilet. That's actually the story. Well, yes and no. What no? What no? How about yes? uh, Yes. All right. Yes. That's why they went into the toilet. Although, when you look at the players who were doing the most, uh, you know, difficult things, uh, Strawberry and Gooden still performed at a pretty high level from 87 on. The team was never the same because management had 
rightfully decided we got to do something here because these guys are living. They're out, you know, having champagne. And, you know, Wally Backman tells a story about 10 bottles of Dom Perignon at, the, at Sparks Steakhouse one night. And they got a doubleheader the next day and you got to play. And and that's the least of it. I mean, obviously, cocaine was was rampant. But management wanting to, you know, take care of this issue broke up the team. So it wasn't it wasn't the same team in 87 as it had been in 86 and the same with 88. So you you lose Ray Knight, who was, as I said, the glue to that team. And you trade Kevin Mitchell, who we haven't mentioned, who was this sort of all world super rookie, could play anywhere, tough as nails. And and because he was an African-American and because he looked and he'd been in gangs in San Diego, management thought well, he's got to be a bad influence on on the two real stars of the team, Strawberry and Gooden. So let's get him off the team. They had it completely backwards. Strawberry and Gooden had been a bad influence on Mitchell. And they traded Mitchell for a very solid, very plotting, dull player named Kevin McReynolds. And without that chemistry, they didn't win again. Okay. Liken it to our teams today. I don't think teams today are... One of the things about the, the 86 Mets is they really wanted to win. And that seems like such a cliche. Like, I came into this thinking, well, don't all teams want to win? Isn't that the goal of sports? And it is and it isn't. They all, to a man, said, you know, they've all been on teams where you want to win, but if you get your three hits, get you're happy. Get today. So today, I don't think teams care as much about winning, and I don't think ah, they, they don't. Ah, and I, ah, What are you saying? I, I'm sorry. It, what are it, you saying? I'm saying that they, they're making a lot of money, and they're leading a really good, comfortable lifestyle, and if they don't win... It's not the end of the world. For the 86 Mets, it was going to be the end of the world if they didn't win the World Series. They all would have been miserable. Also, they were so they arrogant. Have, also, they wouldn't have had enough money for the junk that they were putting in their veins. <laughs> Why are you telling me the people today don't want to win? I, I'm, I'm going to throw they, you the hell out I'm of this I'm not studio. saying they don't want to win, but it isn't running through their veins as much. Well, and, what and, was running through their veins in 1986 was different. Right, I'm going to get rid I'm gonna, of you. I'm going to use the other word that is uh, dubious is chemistry. I don't think teams today care as much about chemistry. I think that baseball teams, it's much more about analytics and you can watch a game. I don't know if you watched last night, but look, the, the Rays won. But their pitcher... Five innings, he was dealing. Why take him out? Because that's part of the analytics. We're taking him out after five innings. He's thrown enough pitches, and we got a great bullpen. It worked out, and maybe it'll all work out for the Tampa Bay Rays. But it didn't last year in the World Series when they took out the pitcher who was pitching a no-hitter. I don't think I'm going to talk to you much longer. It's too much analytics. You have to pay attention to the game, and I feel like that's what's been lost. I don't think I'm going to pay attention to you. I'm sorry, Just make sure you (laughs) mention the name of your documentary. The documentary is Once Upon a Time in Queens, Okay, and it's... Airing on ESPN Plus, and it's also available on okay, the download things. Okay, now shut up. I have to ask you, what about the four-letter words? Ah. I mean, when you- can you... watch on ESPN2. It's, it's been censored on ESPN2. I don't know about ESPN. And ABC. It's going to be rerun on ABC on the 17th and the 31st during the afternoon on Sundays, and it's been cleaned of all four-letter words. So Lenny Dykstra is nothing but, but bleeps and bleeps. What was it like to talk to them? They don't even speak United States. They speak a, a, a phrase that I don't understand, actually. How could you record them with their filth? 
It was uh, an honor to record their filth. I will say this. The, the first seven minutes of Lenny Dykstra's interview were hi- hilarious and profane, and I felt like I was in the presence of Lenny Bruce. It was that funny and that uh, dirty. Well, they got rid of Lenny Bruce, too, after a while. Do you understand well, that? I mean, uh, I want to talk well, to you Lenny about Bruce, Lenny Dykstra. Yeah. Was Queens the center then of these sport kings? Yeah, it, Queens was the center of the world for one brief shining moment. Uh, Queens, the the benighted borough of Queens, was the center of the world, um, and you had a lot of great things going on musically and culturally as well. That was sort of centering around Queens. Did you meet with the Mets owner today, Steve Cohn? Not today. No, I didn't meet with him today. Well, how about yesterday? Uh, no, not yesterday. How about last week? Last week. I, d- I didn't see him last week. The month before? <laughs> uh, last month. No, we didn't actually meet last month. Okay. So I have a feeling you haven't met with Steve. I have not met with uh, Steve Cohen. See, he took, does I... not need my help, but I, boy, I could offer him some all kinds of free oh, advice um, as a yeah, fan. You yeah, know, I like understand he needs that. It. Okay. Yeah. Did you meet with the previous owner, Fred Wilbon, whom I, I know very well? No, I did not meet well, with Mr. Well, who did you meet with? I met with their people, I, the, the 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 marketing team and the and the uh, al- the head of alumni operations for the New York Mets, a man named Jay Horowitz, who is a legend in the PR field. Uh, he was their PR guy in the '80s, running interference for them. And I met with him. And if if he calls a Met and says, "Hey, you got to talk to this guy," they listen to him. Who owned the team then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Nelson Doubleday owned the team in 1980. Doubleday Publishing buys the team, and Nelson Doubleday is the principal guy behind it, and he's maybe descended from Abner Doubleday, the mythical creator of baseball. Very exciting. And then Fred Wilpon. Uh, who's this little guy? He's a little uh, minority no owner. you didn't meet with him. Yeah, well, that. it's okay. Anyway, so, but in 1986, the Mets, Doubleday was bought by Bertelsmann. So Doubleday Publishing had to sell the Mets, and they sold them back to Nelson Doubleday. Unbeknownst to him, Fred Wilpon had right of first refusal if the Mets were ever sold. So he comes in as co-owner in November of 1986. And Cindy, it's a coincidence or is it that the Mets have not won a World Series since? Oh, I feel just so badly. So how has baseball changed from then to today, if if it has. It's How? still such a great game. I, I, I know that uh, people of my generation tend to complain about the analytics, the shift, all this stuff, and the games take too long, whatever. But it's, it's a great game. It's the greatest game. There's no clock. It could go on forever. What was, so can you, what were the salaries then? What were the salaries? Oh, that's a great question. Well, uh, about $2 million a year would have been like the most anybody made. Uh, George Foster had a five-year, $10 million contract, and that was the upper, upper uh, most. And $2 million is a lot of money. And in 1986, it was really a lot of money. Well, considering a lot of it got blown in their veins all and right, things like all right, that. I mean, all right. I there mean, were a few of them who did have uh, drug addictions. And a it's, few, it's, a few. Name three of them who weren't. Uh, Mookie, <laughs> Gary. Okay, we'll That's start right two. there. Well, what about three? Uh, you know, I, I don't th- Ed Lynch. I don't think Ed Lynch was doing uh, cocaine. Uh, Ron Darling. Ron Darling wasn't doing cocaine. Okay. Uh, it's four. Okay. No, no, three. three I've named four. Like, all right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, all right. And plenty oh, more, I'm, I'm sure. Tell me about the surviving players. How are they living now? And Well, the are, crazy are... irony is that the only one who isn't still alive is Gary Carter. 
And he, luckily we talked to his widow, Sandy Carter, and she was great. But that's the insane thing. And Lenny Dykstra pointed it out in the film, like, what is with God that he would take that guy first, who was maybe the cleanest of them all? Uh, The rest of them are all doing pretty well. Um, Daryl Strawberry has completely turned his life around. And he is now a preacher who lives in St. Louis. St. Louis was the Mets' arch rival. And as Daryl said, you know, what God must have quite a sense of humor that he would put me in St. Louis. Uh, but he's a preacher and doing very well. And Keith is obviously a well-known broadcaster. Darling's broadcasting. A lot of them are, are still in the game. Um, for some of them, it's a struggle. But I think that, uh, you know, for the most part, they all look back on that moment with a great deal of pride. In 1986. They they all look at the 1986 and the fact that they won the World Series in New York City. That is central to who all of them are. And and it's really meaningful. And should they have won more World Series? Maybe. Maybe they could have if they hadn't done so many other things. But the fact that they got the one means a lot to all of them. What did they do after they won? Well, you mean that night? Yeah. Well, a bunch of them went to a, a restaurant bar called Columbus, which I think you may know, and uh, a lot of them partied. And unfortunately, Dwight Gooden, their pitching star, went to um, a drug house. And his intention was to get some drugs and then go meet his uh, guys, meet his teammates at the club. And he never got to the club. And so, as he says, like, it went from being the greatest day of his life, we'd won the World Series, to the worst day of his life, because the next thing he knows, he's watching on TV as the parade is happening. The championship parade is going on without him. He missed the parade. And uh, that is a devastating moment to realize, like, I I blew it. You can't go back. They're not going to redo that. The surviving players, are they in the chips? I don't know if they saved their money or what. In the chips. Is that an expression that means have a lot of money? Where, where, where were you born? You don't understand a phrase in like that? In the chips. Is you that the I'm Damon talk- Runyon? Where? You think I'm talking about potato chips? Where, where were in you born? In the chips. I don't know. In the sauce. I, I, I'm in New York City. In the chips. I never heard it. It's great. Is that mean that means they're doing okay, well? Let me do it simply. Poker chips? Uh, oh, how the surviving players, how are they financially now, I think that some of them financially now are OK, and I think some of them financially now are not. Um, and I it's it's you know, you you can't make generalizations. Some of them did well. Some of them invested wisely. Others did not. Others had major problems legally, went to jail for all kinds of nefarious things yeah and um and and are struggling and uh there's a wonderful program that major league baseball has called i don't know what it is bat i don't know what it stands for maybe ball players assistance something t anyway so i i think they're going to be okay but um uh i i don't i didn't ask them about their financial circumstances cindy Tell me what you think about the Mets today. I think the Mets today are in a very great spot. I am have total confidence in Steve Cohen, and uh, I'm sure he's going to hire somebody great. Whether he gets any of the famous names out there to run the baseball operations, he's going to get somebody great. He's going to give them the resources to turn this thing around, and they they have some good players, so they will build from a from from a better spot than where they were in 1980 when they had nothing when Nelson Doubleday took over the team. Where do you sit when you go to a game? 
I like to sit uh, just so long as you're in the park. But, you know, I mean, the field level is great. Uh, City field, I'm still not really used to. uh, But, um, you know, I like to sit either along the first baseline or along the third baseline. Tell me about the teams today. The, The actual Mets? Tell me about any team today. Any, what do you think about the baseball I, I think the, today? I think the baseball teams of today are very exciting, and I think the players are tremendously exciting. I think there is there is personality. There's tremendous personality. I don't think that any team will ever fuse with their city the way that team fused with this city. Um, but I could be wrong. But, I mean, God, that guy, uh, Rosarena, on Tampa Bay, he stole home last night. It was one of the most exciting plays you'll ever see. No one had stolen home since Jackie Robinson in the 1955 World Series in a playoff game. Uh, so that's over 60 years. What did you think about the Yankees and the Red Sox? I thought the Yankees... Easy, easy, don't upset me, I'll throw you off. I, I, I thought that the Yankees had something wrong this year. I don't know what was wrong with the Yankees. They were just, it, they, did, they, they never quite gelled. There was one winning streak where you felt like, okay, this is who they should be. But I don't think they had the pitching. Well... It was lovely to have you. <laughs> now you're do you have to mention a book. You got a book coming I out. I do. I have this book out now about my grandfather who you mentioned, Herman Mankowitz and his brother Joe Mankowitz. It's called Competing with Idiots. Herman and Joe Mankowitz, a dual portrait, and the title takes its name from that famous telegram that you may remember. It was actually in that movie Mank starring Gary Oldman, uh, where Herman sends a telegram back East to the writers in in New York saying there's millions to be grabbed out here and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. So that's where that title comes from. Who published? It was published by Knopf. And did you send me a free copy? I handed you a free (laughs) copy before this interview, Cindy, (laughs) and I inscribed it lovingly. Thank you. And get the hell off. Okay. I enjoyed having you. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. (laughs) Goodbye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. For fun, I started this broadcast telling you some of the dumb things that have happened to me. Now, since I'm in the mood, I finish it. And I probably will finish myself off forever. Because now it's about some of the even dumber letters that have been sent to me. If you write a column, you get hit from everybody. A column once got you into a Broadway show. Now there's no Broadway show to get you into. It once got you a table in a restaurant. Now there's no restaurant. You get hit by a bus because they sit you in the street. Now it gets you cranky letters, some of which that come to me begin, Dear Stupid, like Marie from Florida. Ethel Merman, she wrote, once sang Tomorrow Will Be Brighter Than the Good Old Days. That didn't happen. But the Merman story is on computer. You should get it. You should watch it. You should learn what you should write about. You don't know anything. Okay. Georgia from Pennsylvania. I've been in Philly 81 years. It has a history of voter intimidation. When Romney ran for president, when Romney (laughs) ran for president... 59 Philly precincts reported zero votes for him. That's impossible. Also impossible is some of the stuff you say in the column. (sighs) Dale from Manhattan, you are over for me. How could you say Biden hasn't faced tragedies? 
Don't you judge the feelings of loss? Everyone suffers in their own way. Of course, he never mentioned Joe's other son, who's making millions from some schmatas he's drawing on. Then there's Patricia from New Jersey. Quote, your column is always enjoyable. It's the first page I go to. I think you might enjoy yourself if you'd venture out to our home, which is in the woods in New Jersey. Your housekeeper and your driver are also welcome. Yeah, like I'm rushing off to the woods in New Jersey. Susan from Manhattan. I feel like I know you. Your stories are amazing. I am a fan. Your stories are great. People think when I say you're great, they think I'm nuts. I am not nuts. Then there's this one that's unsigned. Quote, you have compliments for the 300-pound orangutan who was in the White House. Orangutan is misspelled. It's no wonder a woman hasn't won the presidency. It's because of stupid writers like you. Then there's Doris in the Bronx that says, go F yourself. Everyone knows that that scumbag, and then it says other words, had ties to Russia. He'll end up peeing in his pants. This particular valentine was from a blue-lined composition notebook. Then there was Patrick from Brooklyn. I've been reading you for so long, I feel we're old friends. You produced the most entertaining column in New York. Oh, God, I was so happy to have that. It was written only on a postcard. Marion from Brooklyn, you wrote a wonderful column about self-centered people who put poison in their bodies. I thank you for that. Although, truth be told, I don't read you very often. <laughs> Margaret from Suffern. Please keep writing. We love, 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 love you. You are the only one who tells the truth. Truth, misspelled. I'm surprised they let you. Rocco from Manhattan. I often read you. Fortunately, you are still there, although how much longer you can be, who knows. You may be the last one in existence. Try to keep it up. Shawneen from New York City. I read your housekeeper makes goat curry. In Montego, I had that from a florid-faced Brit who barked nasty to everyone and was Trevor Howard's brother. No wonder he was always angry. A movie star for a brother, and he is slinging hash in sweltering heat. What that had to do with me, I have no idea. Sedell from New York City. You are a main reason I read the post. But in Utica, misspelled Utica, they had an item about a famous couple divorcing. You didn't have that. Why does a Utica paper know something you don't? And Jay from Florida sent a talking Valentine card. It just arrived. And he said the card is available on Amazon. Francine. From I can't read where. God bless you. I read you every day. I love your patriotism. I love your love for New York. You're becoming wonderful, and it's becoming a hellhole. And I love your witty comments 
about jerks like J-Lo and A-Rod. Yeah, me too. Julie from New Jersey. I just want to say how much I love reading you. Thank you for telling it like it is. Okay, I've come to the end of the broadcast. Everyone should stop making jokes about our town. It's enough. It was even in Nick Davis's documentary. I myself am not worried about crime in the streets. Why? Because in my neighborhood, they make house calls. Listen, only in New York, kids. Only in New York. And I'll talk to you again next Sunday. Same time, same station. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.